science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we present true personal stories about science. I am your host, Liz Neely, and fear not, Erin Barker is just busy getting us ready for our upcoming 10th anniversary show, and she will be back soon. <laughs> it feels right, I think, then, that this week, we're presenting stories about things being a little off, like a little wrong. Welcome to our episode, Something's Not Right. Now, I don't know about you, I have had plenty of times in my life when I knew I was forgetting something, even if I didn't know what it was, or I knew something was off, even if I couldn't say why. But I wouldn't really call those feelings like scientific. I always thought they were like the most superstitious part of me. But I really love this. I found a paper, surprise, surprise, but a paper in the Journal of General Internal Medicine. It's dedicated to gut feelings that doctors have when they're ex examining a patient and like trying to make a diagnosis. I love this analysis because they suggest that those intuitions can actually play a powerful and important role in good decision making. So they're suggesting that a nagging feeling of alarm or worry should be a cue to the doctors to slow down in their diagnosis, to reconsider all the available evidence. And this would help them pay attention to everything that their experience and their training has taught them to figure out what's going on with this patient. So that's how I'm thinking about my gut feelings now. My hunches, my inexplicable gut feelings, they might not be right on their own, but maybe they might just help slow me down enough that I pay close enough attention to catch something that I would have otherwise gotten wrong. So that's how I'm thinking about something is not right. But before we dive into today's stories, I just wanted to mention that the episode has themes of mental illness, and the first story in particular includes thoughts of self-harm. If you or someone you love is struggling with either of these, I am so sorry. Please know you're not alone. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or find them online for a confidential chat. Counselors are available to you at any hour of the day and any day you need them. You can also text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741 and get support from crisis counselors at the crisis text line. I'll say that again if you need it. Text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741 if you're in the U.S. or Canada and 85258 in the U.K. You don't have to go through this alone. Okay, let's listen to some stories. Our first story is from Keith Melnick. It was recorded in October 2019 at Beer Baron Tavern in Washington, D.C. The theme of that night was trick-or-treat. Six years ago, I was home in New England visiting my mom, uh, sleeping in my childhood bed downstairs when... In the middle of the night, I jolted up at the horrifying sound of my mother shouting for help. I leapt out of bed, and I was going to head out the door and go upstairs. 
Uh, but then I paused because I realized the sound wasn't coming from her bedroom, which is directly above mine. Uh, it was coming from the same floor. And my heart sank as I realized that somehow she had gotten trapped inside my bedroom wall. I realize that sounds improbable. <laughs> but it is astonishing the shit your brain will accept without question when you are an active sleepwalker. <laughs> and if we can leave my mom inside the wall for just a minute, I'd like to give a little history of my sleepwalking. The technical name for it is somnambulant parasomnia, and much like a dream, I don't actually remember when or how or where it began. What I remember is in my early 30s, it's just starting to happen more often. It started with talking once every few weeks, and not simply talking, but screaming, screaming curse words at the top of my lungs. And every once in a while, I would actually scream like a howler monkey being attacked by a jaguar for about 10 seconds. <laughs> On one of those incidents, my housemate at the time, the next morning, said, so I, I heard you last night, uh, and I know it was you doing your sleep thing, uh, but I had two thoughts about it. One, it was terrifying. And two, it was not masculine. <laughs> not too long after that, uh, I started moving more in my sleep. And, and the thing also about the, the screaming, I know about this because I have an app on my phone that called aptly sleep talk recorder that records any sounds I make. So I would listen to those and I would be able to pick up all of these incidents. So a little bit later I start acting out some of these dreams and a recurring dream I started having once every few months maybe was that my apartment was getting broken into. And so I would climb out of bed and I would tiptoe towards the door and I could hear somebody in the next room. And I would always shout at the door pretty much the exact same thing, which was these words. I know what you're doing. <laughs> which under any circumstance is a weird thing to yell at a burglar. <laughs> the incident started getting more regular over time and more pervasive. I had this very boring but meta dream that I was lying in bed and I was having trouble sleeping. I was a little chilly, so I tried to pull the blanket up over me, but I couldn't get a good grip on it. So I'm playing with it a little bit and finally I get a grip and I tug it. And when I do, I wake up very suddenly. And I wake up because my mother has elbowed me in the rib cage. I have fallen asleep standing up at church. <laughs> in my defense, I was jet lagged, it was midnight mass, and it was church. <laughs> that said, that explanation did not seem to placate the gentleman in the pew in front of me whose jacket I was clutching aggressively. <laughs> not too long after that, I have this dream where I'm a British soldier stationed in late 19th century Afghanistan <laughs> during the second Afghan war. and. Word had come down that there was going to be an attack on our fort, and the captain had tasked me with reinforcing our meager walls with whatever I could find. Logs, rocks, bottles, children. Pretty much anything would fit in the wall. And it stressed me out. Uh, people had their families inside this fort, and I'm grabbing stuff, and I'm, I'm pushing it into the mud, but the wall just collapses every time I try and support it. And at some point, I look to my left, and I think, God damn it, they're just going to come right through that window. And I look to my right and I think, well, that's weird. There's a Beatles poster on the wall. <laughs> and that's when I enter this magical space where I'm not really awake and I'm not really asleep. And I start trying to rationally deduce what is real. 
I look around, I see I'm, I'm kneeling on a bed. This is clearly not the 19th century. It's Washington, D.C. in the 21st century. And I look and I discover that I have withdrawn every single drawer from my bureau, emptied them out, and placed them on their edges around the bed. <laughs> Still not completely awake, my first thought is, that's not going to stop anybody. <laughs> And it's not so long after that that I go up to my mom's house and discover that she's trapped inside the wall. So I leap out of bed. I can hear her shouting. The sound is muffled, but she's clearly scared. I don't know how long she's been in there. I don't know how much oxygen she has. Um, I don't know what to do, but I, I want to calm her. So I yell at the wall, Mom, I'm on it. <laughs> because in a time of crisis, it's important to project confidence. <laughs> but I, I, I don't have confidence. I don't know what to do. I'm freaking out. This is not like my mom. This doesn't happen to her. Um, so <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I, I panic. I, I grab a, uh, a, a pretty solid and pretty expensive table lamp uh, from the nightstand, and I start smashing it against the wall as hard as I can to try and create a, an air hole. Uh, the bulb explodes, the shade is in tatters, and the lamp itself breaks in half. The wall, interestingly enough, doesn't even have a scratch on it. Uh, I don't know what the hell that wall was made out of, but we really could have used it in Afghanistan. Um, <laughs> all this commotion starts to wake me up a little bit, and I enter that space where I'm trying to figure out what's real and what's not. I, I'm about 90% sure this is just a dream. As I say, my mom's more savvy than to get stuck in a wall. And then I look in the doorway, and standing there, like Houdini, is my mom <laughs> in her nightgown, looking rightfully concerned. And she asks a very informed question. She says, Keith, are you awake? And I say, I think so. What happened to the lamp? I thought you were trapped inside the wall. <laughs> that seems to satisfy her. She comes over and gives me a great big warm hug, that kind of loving hug that only your mom can give you. And then she says, my baby boy is fucking crazy. <laughs> and then adds, maybe you should do one of those overnight sleep studies. So I look into it. There's actually a really great place up in Friendship Heights, uh, but I send them my insurance information and they email me back saying my insurance doesn't cover it. It's going to be $700. So I email them an MP3 of me screaming like a howler monkey. They write back and say, we'll do it for three. <laughs> I go up to this place on a Tuesday night. It's an office building. You'd have no idea what was going on in there. I go up to the eighth floor, walk in, and it just feels like this like high-tech opium den brothel. There's a... <laughs> Bunch of people walking around looking kind of hazy, hoping they don't bump into anyone they know. Everyone's signing waivers. And this technician, he leads me into a small room that's big enough for, uh, there's a twin bed, and then there's this collection of machines that look simultaneously futuristic and 70s retro. I put down the pillow I brought to make me feel remotely at home. I look and notice the camera in the corner, and then uh, the technician glues about, I think, 20 or 30 little electrodes all over my head and all over my body, and each one is connected by a long, skinny wire to these machines. 
And he explains uh, that they have an EKG, an EEG, an EMG, and an EOGs, which is at least two more Gs than I knew were out there. <laughs> but they're going to measure the activity in my uh, heart, my brain, my muscles, and my eye movement, uh, as well as measure my respiration and my perspiration. I lie down, and despite the fact that I feel like a marionette plugged into the matrix, I get a pretty average night's sleep for me. Six or seven hours. I don't scream, I don't jump out of bed, but I do talk at one point where apparently I say, that sounds great, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm closing a business deal in my sleep or what's happening there. It's uh, a month between the test and when I'm going to be able to meet with uh, this renowned sleep doctor, and I can't wait for it. And I go into her office, and she's sitting on one side of her desk, and I'm on the other, and she's looking over my charts like she's plotting the invasion of Normandy. And she says, you don't have sleep apnea. You, you breathe fine in your sleep, and uh, you definitely get a sufficient amount of deep sleep, to, you know, restore your body, and sufficient amount of REM sleep to restore your mind or your dream. But, and then she looks up with a little twinkle in her eye, and she says, but during your stay here, you had an incredibly high elevated number of arousals. <laughs> Which I didn't see coming. That, and honestly, my first thought is, is that uh, I'm a bit embarrassed, as if like the sleep technician had to watch a shitty black and white monitor of me masturbating in my sleep all night. <laughs> but then, truth be told, I, I actually feel kind of cool after a couple seconds, because I'm no spring chicken. Um, <laughs> I like to think I got a robust libido, but I've got it backed up by science now. Uh, but she quickly goes on to explain that in this context, uh, an arousal is when you come from uh, one state of sleep, usually up one or up to the surface, uh, for just maybe five or ten seconds. We all do it, and often people wake up a number of times for a brief period at night, and we don't even remember it. So I ask her, okay, well, uh, what would be a normal number of arousals uh, for a guy like me in a place like this. <laughs> and she says, I would expect 10 to 20, maybe even a few more. Well, how many did I have? 137. <laughs> so while most people fall asleep and take about a half hour to meander down to REM sleep, have their first few dreams and then head over towards some light sleep and then some deep sleep and do a few laps. I pretty much hit the pillow and drop like a pearl diver down into my dreams. <laughs> and then I rock it back up to the surface and then I go back down to the bottom. Does these like come back? I'm pretty much running intervals through my entire sleep state until I wake up in the morning. And that rapid switch is why my brain can't release, uh, regulate the release of the paralytic chemicals that keep us from acting out our dreams. So luckily there's hope. <clears throat> And first thing she does is prescribe me trazodone. Trazodone, uh, it was the first antidepressant approved by the FDA in the 1970s. Uh, turns out it doesn't really do a whole lot for depression, uh, but a low dose helps a lot of people with sleep. So I get my pack of pills and I go home that night and when I take that first one, I'm so curious, I feel like Alice. I pop it in my mouth <laughs> and I fall asleep and then I wake up in the morning and it's an amazingly peaceful night's sleep. It just feels restful. It feels like I got away from whatever for the night. And it's not addictive. I'm allowed to take it every day, so I do, and it's marvelous. I'm just feeling like I've never gotten such good sleep in my life. But 
I am one of the few people who has a rare side effect. And there aren't a lot of side effects that I wouldn't tolerate for a good night's sleep other than maybe sleeplessness. <laughs> but the side effect that I'm getting is uh, suicidal thoughts, which, yeah, it's a deal breaker. Uh, and to be clear, what's crazy is even when I get the thoughts, I know it's because of the drugs. And they're never genuine desires. But anytime I get even mildly stressed, and I'm raised in the kind of family where anytime you can't make a decision, you just stress out, uh, I get these thoughts. So I have situations where like, I can't decide in the supermarket between Cheerios and honey bunches of oats, and this thought goes to my head is like, maybe you should just kill yourself. <laughs> It's a deal breaker. I get off the drugs. But on some level, I'm grateful that the trazodone didn't work because it forces me to deal with the problem rather than just mask the symptoms. So I work with the doctor on a whole routine. First of all, no uh, screens before bed, as we've probably all heard. Uh, they inhibit the release of melatonin, which makes us feel sleepy. Um, improve my diet, increase my exercise, no caffeine after noon, regulate the consumption of alcohol, and perhaps most importantly, go to see some therapy so I can deal with some of the stress that's freaking me out in the middle of the night anyway. It's now been five years since I did that sleep test. And every once in a while, as my girlfriend can attest, I will scream out in my sleep. But it's pretty rare. And it's usually kind of a little bit of a canary in the coal mine that maybe there's things I'm not dealing with. Overall, I'm so much happier and I'm sleeping generally really well. So until I go back to destroying furniture and harassing parishioners in my sleep, I'm definitely gonna consider the issue resolved. Thank you. That was Keith Melnick. Keith is a freelance photographer whose past work in the Middle East, Central Asia, and East Africa has been highlighted in places like National Geographic Books, The Atlantic, and his brother's refrigerator. <laughs> Keith is based in Washington, D.C., where he currently works with organized labor and progressive causes throughout the U.S. In addition to photography and storytelling, he enjoys any opportunity to escape into the woods, he says, far from politics, Photoshop, and the oppressive D.C. heat index. I got to see Keith's story live, and it, oof, it was mind-boggling, especially for someone like me who used to have terrible, terrible nightmares. Um, I think I really terrified I mean, my parents suffered probably more than I did from that. But as Keith says in his story, anxiety and issues that we're not dealing with in our waking lives have this awful way of bleeding into our dreaming selves. And it feels like an epically unfair twist of fate that disrupted sleep in turn puts even more strain on our waking hours. So be gentle to yourself. And please reach out for help if you need it. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one 800 273-8255 or text the word HOME, H-O-M-E, to the number 741741 for a counselor from the crisis text line. For me personally, a key part of coping with everything <laughs> is making sure that I feel connected and close to my friends and family. And uh, I will admit that Marco Polo app is taking over my life. And I'm also a little bit worried about how much I've been drinking, thanks to all of our team happy hours. 
But if you are looking for a wonderful way to wrap up a long week and spend some time unwinding with great people and great stories, please join us at 7 p.m. Eastern Time every Friday for our live weekly shows. I wasn't sure, I have to admit, if we were going to be able to capture the spirit of what makes Story Collider so special. And, you know, live events in person are very different from things online, but my team is blowing me away. Erin is an amazing host, no surprise to any of you who are listening. And every week we hear three new stories on a theme. We laugh a lot and cry a little because, I mean, this is Story Collider. Um... But we also argue over fun polls, and everybody gets to contribute their own 10-word mini-story to the theme that week. Oh, and you don't have to worry. You are not on camera. So you just get to sit back and enjoy. It is the perfect way to unwind and connect. You can find the link to this week's show on any of our social media posts, or just go to storycollider.org. And May 15th is going to be one of the most special live shows we've hosted online yet. We're celebrating 10 years of true personal stories about science, which is hard to believe, and I'm so excited. We'll have incredible new stories, your fan favorites, old friends, and so much more. This isn't, <laughs> this isn't how we envisioned celebrating this milestone, not by a long shot, but this is what we do now isn't it? We experiment. We get creative. We are going to turn towards each other and savor everything that's good. I cannot wait to celebrate. I am so excited, and I hope to see you there. But first, one more story. Our next story today is from Avni Johal. It was recorded in November 2019 at Fox Cabaret in Vancouver, British Columbia. The theme of the show that night was Great Expectations. I've always performed well academically. I should be excited to be here. <laughs> I'm two months into my first year as a university student. I'm getting ready to leave my residence dorm room, and it's happening again. Something doesn't feel right about the way that last textbook went into my backpack. I take it out, the bag, I put it back in. It's still not right. I take everything out of the bag. I put everything back in. Something is still wrong. I unpack and I repack the bag several times over before I can leave my room. This time, I'm only 20 minutes late. 20 minutes late for class. This feels like an improvement. The day before, I missed the entire class doing the same thing. A few days later, I don't like something about the way that my residence dorm room door has closed and locked behind me. Something about it wasn't right. The way that it felt when it closed, the sound of the lock when it turned. I tell myself to forget about the door, just go to class, ignore these thoughts, the door is fine. I make it halfway to class. I'm consumed completely, as I always am, by the thought that there's something wrong and I have to go back to properly close the door again. It's becoming physically uncomfortable as the mental thoughts translate into physical pain. I give in, I go back. I repeatedly open and close the door, sometimes even taking short breaks between my attempts, but I 
can't quite get it right. I hear someone approaching along the hallway, so I quickly pretend to be doing something else, and I quickly pretend like I'm looking for something in my bag as they pass. As they approach, they say, Hi, how are you? Hi, good, how are you? I say in return. As soon as, they've, as soon as they're gone, out of sight, I return to the door, opening and closing it for 45 minutes. Class is over. I miss the chance to hand in my assignment again. The more I'm experiencing these strange thoughts and behaviors, the more I try to hide them, which is getting harder and harder to do. I can't let anyone see me doing these things. It would shatter my denial if I had to answer any questions or truly acknowledge what's been going on. I would be embarrassed, confused, ashamed. I wouldn't even know what to say. It's difficult for me to explain the level of frustration I feel at having to repeat so many actions so frequently throughout the day. If I want to put my shoes on, I have to put them on and take them off and put them on and take them off four or five times before I finally get it right, each time tying and untying the shoelaces. I can't close the lid of my laptop without doing it several times over. I know it makes no sense, and I'm annoyed at myself for wasting so much time doing these things. If I try to stop or break free from my thoughts, my brain always knows exactly how to keep me held hostage. If I don't open and close the lid one more time, there will be an earthquake that will destroy the entire university. If I don't do it five more times, my dad will die. It doesn't matter how much I tell myself that this is irrational, it's beyond irrational. These consequences will all be my fault and I'm never prepared to take that risk. So I always give in. I also can't focus or concentrate on anything else until I complete the required repetition. So I give in. Soon it spreads to every single movement that I make, every single motion. Every time I lift my foot off of the ground, every time it returns back to the surface, every single motion. Any time any part of my body makes contact with anything else, I have to think so carefully about the angle, the speed, the direction, the spirit, the purpose of every single movement. Every action has to be accompanied by the appropriate thought. I don't even know what this means. I never know what it means until I know that I've done it wrong. I'm beginning to hate this. Some days, on many days, I decide to stay in bed. I can't quite face the prospect of getting in and out of the covers, in and out of bed 20 times over just to get one foot on the ground and keep it there. I can't do this anymore. I'd rather just not try. At this point, my life is a mess. I'm hardly going to any of my classes. Somehow, I'm still keeping up social appearances and I'm still maintaining my extracurricular team commitments, such as my determination that no one ever find out, and such as my desperation to keep pretending that things are somehow still okay. I begin to derive some strange level of satisfaction from being able to hide it so well in public. Each repetition, each adjustment, each thought executed so well, perfectly, in secret. Returning to my dorm room, 
I see a poster in the lobby area of our first year residence building. In large print, the poster asks if, you, if, you, if you're experiencing any of these symptoms, and it says to call this number if you are. The poster is describing my life. It's describing my repetitive thoughts. It's describing my repetitive behaviors. So I get closer to read more. As I do, I notice that the poster is from the Center for Brain Health. That's when I realize this poster isn't for me. There's nothing wrong with my brain. It can't be this. Uh, all of the scholarships, all of the academic awards, how could I possibly have done any of those things if there was something wrong for my brain? It's not this. It's got to be something else. So I leave it. I carry on for months, struggling deeply in denial and unable to face reality. I have this one liter plastic Dasani water bottle that I keep in my dorm room and that I fill up from the communal house lounge down the hallway every time I need some more water. The house lounge, it's made up of a couple of sofas positioned in an L shape. There's a small television mounted onto the wall on one side, and on the opposite side, there's a fridge, a sink, and a microwave all in a row. Usually, on better days, when I go to get water, it takes me two or three tries to fill and empty the water bottle before I can get it right. On this particular day, I just can't quite get it. Every time the water fills to the top, I have this thought that I don't want to have. Nothing terrible, just some random thought. Or maybe it's the way that the tap turns off. It just doesn't feel right. So I empty the water bottle completely and fill it up again, over and over. It's like trying to count slowly to the number 10 without thinking of the word Athens. If any part of the word Athens, even the letter A, slips into your mind for even a split second, you have to start again counting from zero up to 10, and you can't leave until you get it right. I try this impossible task with my water bottle. I start at about 11 p.m., quickly pretending to be doing something else, as I always do when someone enters the space. As soon as they're gone, I return to my hellish challenge over and over again. I started at about 11 p.m. It's now 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm still here, standing in the same spot, filling this water bottle and emptying it out over again. I'm frustrated. I'm exhausted. I'm stuck in this loop. The sun rises. Daylight pours into the lounge. I'm still here, standing, tortured, by the sink, trying over and over and over and over again. This is the worst possible kind of prison. It's one that I know that I've constructed in my own mind. The next day, I go back to that poster in the lobby of the residence building. I can't live like this anymore, and there's no way that I can sustain this facade that somehow things are even remotely okay. Something is wrong, and I need help. I take out my red TELUS flip phone, I pull out the little antenna, and I dial the number on the poster. The response on the other line, we're sorry. 
you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. Please check the number and try your call again. I know that I dialed that number correctly. Out of desperation, I look at the poster and I dial again very slowly, very carefully. I receive the same response, only this time I hang up as soon as I hear the recording. I stand in the lobby, broken and completely empty. I feel like I have gone for as long as I can go without help, and I cannot go any further. I don't know what's wrong with me, and I don't know what to do. This poster that I've been walking by for on so many days, this poster that I've kept in the back of my mind for so long, this, I thought, would be my one source of hope and possible understanding in my darkest hour. I've languished in denial for so long that this one chance for hope now too seems to be gone. I study the poster for any other contact information. I don't find anything. There is, however, in smaller print, some information about obsessive compulsive disorder. I go back to my dorm room, I sit at my desk, and I search online for obsessive compulsive disorder. I read article after article, book extract after book extract. OCD involves unwanted thoughts that intrude on a person's mind and cause a great deal of discomfort, which the person tries to reduce by engaging in repetitive behaviors or mental acts, also known as compulsions. The articles talk about the need for perfection requiring all of the tools and the equipment and the resources and the surroundings to be an absolute perfect arrangement before one can begin a task. I know this feeling. The articles talk about symmetry and exactness, the idea that certain tasks and certain actions need to be done in a particular way, otherwise it just doesn't feel right, or some people have thoughts that something bad will happen. I'm understanding all of this all too well. I even read that people with OCD often know that their thoughts and behaviors don't really make any sense and seem strange to other people, although a child with OCD might not realize that their behavior is so foreign to others. Sitting in this dorm room, sitting at this desk, I start to get some of my life back. Things are beginning to make more sense. Even my childhood is beginning to make more sense to me now. I suddenly have an explanation for my thoughts and for my behaviors. I know that there's been something wrong with me for quite a long time. I've been living in denial for so long because I'm so afraid of what the truth might reveal. In the end, it reveals that there isn't anything wrong with me. I just have this disorder, which is thought to be caused by a lack of the brain chemical serotonin. Sitting at this desk, I finally begin to acquire the tools and the information that I need to manage my disorder. I finally learn that I'm not alone, that many people have gone on to live meaningful and successful lives with OCD. I finally am starting to understand what's been happening. This understanding allows me to accept what I've been going through. 
this information, most importantly, finally, gives me hope. That was Avneet Johal. Avneet is an award-winning storyteller based in Vancouver, British Columbia, with expertise in communications and leadership. He previously managed housing programs for the Canadian Mental Health Association and has worked on a series of successful political campaigns. A Canadian representative at the United Nations, he follows global affairs and also enjoys sports, languages, and rap music. He currently serves on the board of directors for the Los Altos Institute and is honored to work with a team of talented undergraduate students at the University of British Columbia, a team which he thanks for encouraging him to share his stories with a wider audience. I know we are grateful. We really appreciate Keith and Avni for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by our one and only artistic director, Aaron Barker, and me, executive director, Liz Neely. We couldn't do it without the help of our deputy director, Nissa Greenberg, operations support manager, Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Miriam Zaring Halem, Shane Hanlon, Josh Solberg, and Kayla Glynn. The podcast is edited by our podcast team of Jun Chen and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Beer Baron Tavern and to Fox Cabaret for hosting these shows. And to, uh, to Dr. Eric Stolper and his colleagues who wrote that paper I was talking about before. If uh, doctor's gut instincts are your kind of thing, it's a good paper. You should read it. Uh, and to my mom, who read me the story Madeline so many times when I was a kid that I've been hearing her voice all day saying, In the middle of the night, Miss Clavel turned on her light and said, Something is not right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay safe.